Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from sunny Seattle, Washington on Tuesday, May 23rd, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Today, we have a pretty exciting treat for everybody. We have the number 17 retailer on the IR500 list, Nordstrom. Nordstrom is one of the more storied retailers in North America, founded in 1901, and today they have over 350 stores in 40 states and Canada, including full-line stores, Nordstrom Rack, Jeffrey Boutiques, Trunk Club, and Haute Look. Joining us on the show today, we have Ken Warzel, who is the president of Nordstrom.com, and Danny Ryder, who is the EVP Online Merchandising and Experience. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, Ken and Danny. Hi, guys. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, we can start right off the bat by educating me because I'm always uh, self-conscious when I say Houtlook, whether I'm saying it right. So can we get an official yes. pronunciation? It's Houtlook. Houtlook. So cr- I am correct th- that I'm not saying it right. <laughs> Think French. Uh, <laughs> na- uh, my, North Carolina, we, we call it Houty Look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my overlords in Paris are going to be like horrified that I... Definitely. Yeah, that I butchered that one. Uh, my apologies, uh, uh, Monsieur Sedern. Uh, um, so uh, this is another first for the Jason and Scott show. Uh, we are both live, so Danny and Ken are here with me in the remote Jason and Scott show studio, um, and Scott is at our executive studio in Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, you're bi-coastal and a mixture of uh, live and not live. It's pretty exciting. Exactly. I feel like the five-second delay that Scott has will be super helpful because, uh, as, as some some loyal listeners will know, he, he can get a little profane at times. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Do you have a bleeping machine? Uh, <laughs> we, we, we've only had to use it when former Razorfish are on the show, actually, but yeah. <laughs> cool. Look, we really appreciate you guys taking time out of your busy days, and um, you know, we'd love to start off with just hearing a summary of your background and what, what your role encompasses at Nordstrom. And Ken, why don't we start off with you? Sure. Um, yeah, my role, uh, you know, I've been at Nordstrom, I've been part of the executive team at Nordstrom for about seven years now, I guess. I, um, I joined actually after a long time, probably about 20 years as a strategy consultant. Uh, so that was really where I'd, I'd spent most of my time pre-Nordstrom. Um, but I, I guess the relevant part about that is uh, Nordstrom was a core client of mine for about a dozen years uh, before I joined the executive team. So interesting perspective as a result of having had an internal perspective now, but for a long time, an external perspective, having worked with a lot of other retailers and consumer companies in, in the U.S. and in Europe. And I joined initially uh, to support our uh, strategy team and build out a, a strategy function for the company as as we were sort of transitioning out of the recession and looking for, for new ways to grow the company. And then subsequently uh, picked up some other responsibilities, including uh, our corporate and business development activities, our data science and analytics teams. Uh, and then about eight or nine months ago, 
uh, took on the the PL responsibility for Nordstrom.com, uh, which you know is is important, I think, because all those things connect. I mean, if you look at our agenda, uh, really for the last three or four years, increasingly everything comes together around how are we going to deliver uh, what's been a storied brand and and customer experience. How are we going to deliver that in a digitally connected world? So you know, our focus is clearly on continuing to be customer obsessed. Uh, and digitally enabled. And I'm lucky enough to get to sit in a position where a lot of those pieces come together across the company. And I'm also lucky enough to have been able to have pulled Danny along on this journey because Danny and I worked together for for a time in consulting. And when I ended up in in, in this gig, I decided I should should bring the smart guy with the English accent to help me sell our ideas. Yeah. Danny, how about you? Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> as you, as Ken has quite pointed out with the accent, so I was, uh, born and raised in the UK. Uh, I actually went straight from college into consulting. Um, a little bit of a, uh, not wanting to know, not knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and so I went into consulting, really thinking about it would be something to gain experience and then go off into, uh, into a career somewhere else. Um, but I actually stayed for a number of years and really worked my way all the way through the different ranks within consulting. Um, and so I actually managed to work with a lot of really interesting and uh, very dynamic different consumer goods and retail companies around the world. Um, so I did a series of projects in Europe, uh, North America, and Asia. Um, and then about five years ago, I uh, received a phone call from Ken uh, talking about the Nordstrom opportunity. And what was really interesting to me is... Um, it's really the combination of the fundamental change that's happening in the retail world right now and just the, the opportunity to really be at the heart of something that's interesting and dynamic and changing. But also, um, from the outside, I always thought Nordstrom was a really good company, uh, very well run. Um, I didn't realize, I didn't realize the level of ambition. Um, and so actually being in a retailer that is very well run, but also having this constructive paranoia about the world and where things are going, um, but also an ambition to keep changing is, um, is pretty, pretty interesting. So, I joined the company about four and a half years ago, originally as part of the corporate strategy team, um, worked on a lot of different things across the whole, all different parts of the company, and then moved into uh, more of an operational role about 18 months ago within Nordstrom.com. Uh, and so my title is Online Merchandising and Experience, um, and there's really three different teams that I support. Um, the first is our online merchandising team, uh, and so a large part of what they do is really help inform our buying team on what the selection strategy should be for our for our website and for our app, using a lot of the customer behavior data to actually point out where we have opportunities for breadth or depth or white space opportunities. As well as they also then take the merchandise strategies and then strategies and then play that out through the content, the navigation and the actual product information on the website. The other two teams I support are focused much more on the features and functionality of the web and the app. Um, so it's the user experience design and research team. So they do a lot of work in terms of understanding the customer need uh, and then actually going through to actually designing the features and functionality themselves. Uh, and then the third team is then the product management team, uh, who interface directly with our engineering team, who actually then go build those different features and functionality. Um, so it's a pretty wide ranging, uh, set of interesting different topics. Um, one of the best things I love about my job is I can go in one day from having a meeting with, uh, someone like a Gucci or a Balenciaga to then walk down the, walk to a different meeting room, have a conversation with our tech team about the architecture of our different the different solutions, uh, and then finally end the day by going to look at some new features and functionality designs and thinking about how we can create some cool experiences. So it's a, uh, I, I definitely love those different elements of my job. Cool. And, um, uh, I'm not an expert, but, uh, aren't there still Nordstrom's at Nordstrom? 
There are. Uh, our team of uh, 11 of us on the executive uh, team, four of them have the last name on the door. So Blake, Pete, and Eric are co-presidents of the company and uh, have different responsibilities. Uh, Pete manages our, our merchandising areas. Uh, Eric is responsible f- for our full-price um, brand, our Nordstrom brand across stores and, and Nordstrom.com. And, and Blake spends uh, a lot of his time on our off-price business, and, including Nordstrom Rack stores and NordstromRack.com and, and Hotlook. And then Jamie Nordstrom uh, is president of Full Line Stores, so my counterpart in the full-price business uh, managing our store business. Cool. It's neat to see. There's not, I'm not aware of any retailers where you still have the family involved to that level set. That must be fun. Yeah, I think it's fun. It's also, it's, it's inspiring. And I think they really, uh, they deserve a ton of credit for maintaining, uh, I think, both the, the ambition that, that Danny highlighted in terms of the ambition to be as relevant 20 and 50 years from now as, as the company's been for the last 50, 100 years. So. Yeah, uh, and that actually brings me to one of my favorite things about uh, all of our jobs is that, is, Danny, as you mentioned earlier, retail is really going through a significant change or disruption right now. And, I mean, you can look at that and say it's a negative thing and scary and all that, but like to me, it's fun that that playbook that Danny's grandfather wrote that was so successful – isn't the playbook uh, that we can all follow today that like the circumstances have changed so much that we all need to um, sort of invent what retail feels like for these digitally disrupted consumers uh, that we're all facing today. And my premise is the, the fundamental thing that's disrupted them more than anything else is ubiquitous access to the supercomputer that uh, we all carry with us now, the the smartphone. Um, and so I, I wanted to dive into how you guys are addressing um, that that transition. And so I guess I'll, I'll start with a softball question. Is mobile important to Nordstrom? Do I have that right? Is I'm still hung up on the fact that you you just promoted Danny to be a Nordstrom and his grandfather. <laughs> no, 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 sorry, sorry. Danny, the grandfather. Yeah, uh, yeah. There is nothing more important. I mean, I'll, you know, I think Danny can can weigh in on this as well. But we're sitting here today, and I think we're excited to be sitting here uh, in large part because we're in the middle of a huge revolution in in customers' experiences and what their expectations are, and a lot of that uh, is directly related to. So supercomputers that started on people's desks and are now sitting in people's pockets. And it has fundamentally changed virtually every part of our customer journey and what customers expect from us, which, again, I think you're right. You can either look at that as scary and risky, or, or you can look at it as this massive opportunity. And I think we, we want to embrace the latter. Yeah, I mean, just by the numbers alone, it's. Uh, <clears throat> I think if you don't say mobile is really important to you as a company or as a retailer, then I think you're missing a big, big, big point. Um, just to quantify, we get roughly 700 million unique daily visitors to our website or app um, per de- per year, um, and roughly now two thirds of that comes through a mobile device, um, and that is only growing. The actual usage of mobile, uh, the actual desktop web experience is declining, um, and so the majority of engagement that we're seeing with Nordstrom in a digital space is coming through a mobile device. Uh, the other big thing is even things like three quarters of our emails that we send to customers are now opened on a phone. So it's a big deal to actually think about not only how, to, how do we interact with customers when they come to our pro- premises, but also when we send communications to them. 
And then the other big thing for me with mobile is it is the device with which we can actually link our digital and physical spaces. Um, and if we truly believe that one of, our, one of our advantages as a company is the legacy of the great stores we have and the people in the stores and actually giving people great experiences in those stores, the phone is the one device that cuts across both the home experience, the on-the-go experience, and the store experience. Cool. Let's peel the onion on that a little bit. Um, how would you guys grade the progress you've made so far on mobile? Uh, well, I guess from my perspective, uh, back to this constructive paranoia, I mean, it's it's mixed. I mean, I think uh, there's plenty of things that uh, I think we can uh, take comfort in and take pride in in terms of what uh, the, the organization's delivered and what we've delivered to customers but at the same time, we look at how fast everything's changing around us. And, and, you know, I don't mean just customers' expectations, but competitors are making us better every day and, and challenging us. So I think we, we recognize, uh, you know, we were one of the earliest retailers uh, to be in the digital space in a lot of our categories, starting, you know, off a catalog heritage that we had and then translating that into a, a desktop e-commerce experience. And we were also early to get into to mobile uh, as a, as a platform and as a vehicle to connect with customers, but we we see a huge amount of uh, opportunity and, and need for us to continue to make progress. So, I mean, from my perspective, uh, it's a, a C C plus. I mean, we've still got a long way to go uh, to give ourselves the kind of grades we'd like to give and to give the experience I think that our customers expect us to give them. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly concur with a C grade. I think we've made some really good progress. So. Just looking at it, I think you have to separate out mobile web from app. And I think on the mobile website, we've gone from having a translated version of our desktop experience to actually having a specifically designed version of our that is specifically for the mobile um, phone itself. Uh, and as part of that, doing simple things like designing the interfaces so they are touch-friendly on a small screen, and um, as well as making sure that performance is a big deal because obviously usage on a mobile phone on mobile web is, is very light and very broad. Um, and then in the app, um, we actually have a, a very good fashion retail app. So it gets roughly four and a half star, star reviews in the in the app store. Um, but obviously, the challenge of that is that re- fashion retail apps in particular have not really taken off in terms of engagement. Um, and that is something that we're going to have to continue to push on is how do we actually get people to engage with our app more um, because apps are expensive. Yeah. One one thing uh, Jason and I debate a lot is the the gulf between conversion rates uh, on desktop and and the mobile web and or apps. Um, is that one of the ways you guys grade yourself? And do you think that will is closing or will close? Or um, I, I tend to think it probably won't close. It's just kind of different things. And Jason thinks if you put enough uh, payment systems on there, it'll eventually close. So, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's actually it's a really tough one. When you actually look at the data, um, well, the use case. So first of all, the conversion in the conversion rankings of our different channels is highest in the app, then it's next next in desktop, and then it's mobile optimized web. And there is a very significant difference across that spectrum. Um, Ken and I debate this a lot about how much do we think we can actually close the mobile gap. I think we can close a fair amount of it, but I don't think all. And I don't think the reason you, the reason you can't close all of it is the use case quite often is you're on the bus or you're, you're walking around and you want to just browse and get information. Um, what's really interesting to me is when you actually look at the data of the drop-off. Um, so actually, the, the product view rates on the mobile web is very similar to desktop. 
Um, where it, really where it starts to fall off is the add to bag and then completion rates. And add to bag actually is a big drop off. And so I think that just shows that people are coming to look, look at products, not necessarily add it to their cart. Uh, and then when, in terms of the actual how that then flows through the rest of the funnel, um, once you get to checkout, there's a pretty significant drop off. And I think a large part of that is the friction in the checkout. Um, and that is it's, it's hard to check out on a small screen, particularly if you don't have your payment uh, all your payment details saved. I also think that, uh, and you guys have debated this as well, but I think single session conversion is a bit of an apples to oranges comparison across uh, these devices. I mean, you look across almost any activity, uh, there's more frequent uh, but less lengthy interactions uh, with mobile sessions than there are with desktop sessions. And that's certainly true in our categories. So I think, you know, increasingly we look at uh, even this conversion and engagement uh, kind of measurement, we look at it over a period of time relative to a customer, assuming that we're going to uh, have experiences we can and should build that in mobile that's going to re- uh, encourage more frequent engagement, even if it's uh, lower duration engagement. And you really, I think, want to look at conversion as a function of that, which is can we drive more frequency? You might have a, a lower single session conversion, but against that customer over a period of, of time, uh, we think we can close a lot of that gap. Now, again, I think to, to Danny's point, I don't think you're ever going to close all of the gap because part of what makes the phone so powerful as a supercomputer sitting in your pocket is it's in your pocket. So you can use it to look up reviews when you're in a store to validate the purchase you're going to make in a physical environment. You you look at it on on the bus to see where the closest store is that has that Tory Burch uh, purse that you're interested in. So I think there are a set of use cases that are just enabled by the fact that it's portable and that it's with you all the time uh, that are different. Um, so I, I also think more generally, you know, certainly for us uh, and the kind of retailer and the, and the brand we have, I think we want to be careful that we don't get so focused on conversion uh, that we're not serving the customers who are coming to us for all those occasions where they're not yet ready to buy or where they're looking to be inspired or they're looking to learn about fashion. And that's a lot of folks. I mean, that happens in the physical environment, but it certainly happens a lot digitally as well. And so whether that's on a phone or on a desktop, I think we're always looking to get the balance of creating a richness of experience and engagement as well as being there uh, transactionally when that's when what people are looking to do. Yeah. So uh, with the record, Joe, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, the uh, single session conversion is, you know, one of the convenient things we have to measure. And so I, I, I feel like it, it has gotten an inner, in it, uh, inappropriate amount of focus. Um, and I certainly agree there are a bunch of new use cases that are enabled by that smartphone that we never had on the desktop. And some of those don't have buying intent and that's okay. Yeah. Like they're, they're great brand impressions. And to your point, like that might be buying intent that gets fulfilled in the store or some fashion advice to share with a friend or, or whatever the case is. So I, I think we're all sort of aligned on that. Um, but I do want to double click on a, a point uh, that Danny made earlier. Um, hey, there is a big gap between, our mobile web and our desktop web, but we also have this mobile app, which actually has the best conversion. Um, and this brings up this this uh, you know frequent dialogue that I have to have with retailers is the whole debate about the role of apps and web in your customer ecosystem. And uh, like I'll just say it up front, I walk into a lot of retail environments where there's a huge amount of the corporate treasure being invested in in an app and. Oh, by the way, there aren't very many active users on yeah. on that app. How, how do you guys think about that? 
Yeah, so um, so we definitely think there should be a differential strategy between the mobile web and app. I think that's that's a learning that we've had internally over the past couple of years. Um, I think you have to take a look at the similarities and differences. I think the similarities between the two is that, first of all, the form factor. It's a small screen with a touchscreen input. Uh, you don't have a keyboard. You don't have the ability to actually um, navigate in the same way you can on a desktop experience. So you have to design the user experience in a way that's easy to use and intuitive, but also um, really optimizes for that form factor. Uh, the second is um, you can almost guarantee that when somebody's using, whether it's a mobile web or an app, it's in the context of the world around them, which is at the desktop, you're at your, you're looking at a, a bigger screen, you're more engrossed, whereas on the phone, you basically are probably parallel processing, either being on the bus or, quite frankly, I sit at home and watch TV and actually I'm on my phone half the time anyway. Um, and so the phone itself is actually, a, it's a connection device that lives in the context of other things happening around you. And so therefore, how you design the experience has to be compelling enough or easy enough that you're actually going to make it um, uh, optimized for that use case. Then in terms of um, how you actually think about the differences between the two, I think you have to look at the use cases and just the just the data alone on how people use the two different form factors. Um, so I think you guys have said this in the past, but mobile web is a very broad and very shallow engagement. When you actually look at the time that people are spending in mobile web, it's a very small proportion of time on, on the phone because people are spending more time in a very narrow and deep way in, in apps. And so the actual f- the frequency versus engagement piece, uh, it flips between the two. So people go to mobile web very frequently but don't spend a lot of time there. People go to apps and they go very deep in those apps and spend a lot of time. And probably the most compelling piece of data for me is that roughly only um, five, people on average only use five to seven apps on a regular basis, but they go very deep in those apps. Um, and so from that perspective, unless you're one of those five to seven apps, you may have the best shiny app that does a bunch of really cool stuff. But if people aren't engaging with it, then you've spent a lot of money to build something that actually um, probably isn't doing anything for your brand. Um, and particularly when you look at the types of apps people are spending time in, and most of them are uh, some form of Google or Facebook entity. Yeah, I think it, I think you guys have talked about this before, but we certainly agree that there are very different roles for these. And I think it, it would be a mistake for us or any retailer to overinvest in the app as an example at the expense of having a really convenient uh, engagement experience in mobile optimized web, which is where the vast majority of our traffic comes. At the same time, there, there's a subset of customers, and in our case, it's it's going to be probably our top 20% of customers who have a deep relationship with us as a brand and they're willing to make the investment uh, to let us live on their phone. And, you know, that's a, that's a privilege uh, for us that we need to in turn provide them with a lot of value off of that. And so I think it's the learning that Danny spoke to. I think it's really clear to us that we need to have an app that serves those customers in a really deep uh, way that gives them the value that they deserve for letting us uh, live on the on this precious real estate that's their home screen. Uh, but we also have to be realistic that that's always going to be a, a pretty small portion of the total number of customers that engage with us, particularly if you look at the kind of uh, categories we're in. I mean, people, we're, we're, we're not a financial institution where people are engaging with us every day. Uh, and, you know, we're not a financial institution in the sense of, you know, people generally have a checking account with, a, you know, one bank. So most people have a banking app on their phone because it makes their life better with their one banking partner. We're usually part of a dozen retailers uh, that customers are choosing between, and they're not going to give us all the privilege of living on their phone. So we'd better, we'd better have compelling experiences uh, at both ends of that spectrum, a really great 
mobile optimized web experience for the vast majority of lightly engaged customers and a really high value added uh, engaging app for those customers that give us the privilege to live on their phone. Yeah, the, the last data I saw, I think, showed that only 3% of time spent in apps on a mobile device uh, is in retail apps. And that's because a lot of people, you, the Facebook obviously is by far and away the most used app. And then you, you really go through social, you go through entertainment, then you go through services, which could be banking, it could be taxis, all these different use cases that have been enhanced by put, do, making it happen through an app. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I've seen the Comscore data there. What What's an example of... Um, you know, uh, a feature that the app offers that's not available maybe on the mobile web or, or the desktop. And uh, full disclosure, my wife is a card-carrying Nordstrom member, so I, I kind of know the answer to this one already. <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so a great example. It's really anything where you're actually um, accessing the unique capabilities of the phone that could be the camera. It could be, um, well, that's probably the main one we have right now. So we through our um, app right now, you can visual search um, in multiple different ways. So you could scan about the barcode of an item in a store, and that would actually bring up the product details and you can make a purchase or you can see additional inventory. Um, the other thing we have is visual search. So you can take a photo and then we'll give you like items to that, that item. Yeah, it hasn't rolled out yet to your marketplace, Scott, but another example that takes advantage of, of the unique capabilities of the phone is something we're rolling out uh, this year nationally. We've tested here in the Seattle market over the past uh, six months, which is something called Store Reserve. And that specifically takes advantage of geolocational awareness. So nature of that experience is, imagine as, a, as an engaged customer, you do what a lot of customers do, which start that product discovery on your phone, uh, and you start that journey there. But a lot, of, you know, a lot of the challenge in our categories is you still want to physically evaluate the product. You want to make sure it looks like what you thought it was going to look like, that it fits the way you want it to fit. And so the store reserve experience is start that journey on your phone, put it in a, put these items in a digital closet. We'll then, uh, for your local store so that you can try on a local store, we'll then uh, find the product. Our team will find the product in the store, send you a text message to let you know that indeed we found it for you and we're holding it for you to try it on. Uh, then we'll use a geolocational awareness of the phone so that we can see when you're approaching the store. We'll let you know that it looks like you're on your way in. Those products are waiting for you in dressing room two on the metro level of the downtown Seattle store with your name on it. You come through the door, the product's already waiting, hanging in the dressing room for you to try it on. You go straight to the dressing room, try on the product. You can be in and out in 10 minutes having done everything you wanted to do in terms of discovering the product on your terms, on your time, but also being able to physically evaluate it without having to go through the hassle of sending it to your house and potentially having to return stuff. And you know, that's something we've made a mobile only experience because it's really only a great experience if we can connect the dots with the messaging both ways and, and the geolocational awareness. And, you know, in the same way that Uber doesn't make sense if it wasn't a, a mobile only experience, something like that only makes sense as a mobile only experience. It doesn't really make sense unless we can connect the dots in a really personal way with you. So I think we're looking, when we talked about the C grade, I think it's because we have a whole set of those kind of experiences that customers tell us every day, it would be great if you could do this for me. And we need to do that. We need to, we need to use the phone uh, really to, to leverage all the assets we have and particularly the, the local market assets we have of, of people, product, and place. And how do you connect that, those assets to our customers via their, uh, their mobile device in a way that makes their life really seamless and really easy and on their terms? Yeah, the, uh, we love the curbside stuff, so this sounds like a nice kind of even, you know, kind of taking it to the next level. There. Absolutely. 
Um, the, so one, one other question you guys at the top of the show talked about, you know, using the phone in the store. Is there anything else? Um, I get, you can take a picture and, and scan a code and see the online reviews. Uh, how about anything with beacons where, you know, I approach a shoe display and maybe there's something that lights up on my phone that tells me more. Have you guys experimented with that? Yeah, we've definitely done some testing around that. The big learning on anything like that is it has to be really tied to a compelling merchandising strategy because if, if it's just notifications for the sake of notifications, then it's just annoying. Um, but if you can actually link it to a great product strategy that actually enhances the experience. And so what we've really been thinking about is whether it's beacons or scanning or other, other technologies like some of the, some of the light fixtures that actually help you with geolocation or pieces as well. Um, it really has to be linked to what are we trying to achieve from the actual product and merchandising strategy? Otherwise it's technology for technology's sake. We, we like to call those mass pushes where you just push the same message to everyone when they walk by the beacon, uh, geo spam. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> How about uh, one last kind of on this topic of the store? Um, I've noticed your associates are all very well connected. They're they're either they seem to be able to access the internet on their uh, point of sale system, and then many of them have like a mobile tablet of some kind. I don't. I've never been able to tell if it's an iPad exactly or what's going on. It usually is in a case and hard to tell. Um, is there any connectivity there where? You know, uh, the you know maybe I have something in my digital closet on my phone, and I can you know push it out to the store associate or anything like that. Yeah, so uh, we don't quite have exactly that functionality right now, but one of the things that we're most excited about that is uh, in the process of rolling out right now is really enhanced selling tools for our salespeople, um, and that's going to hopefully live on the on their mobile devices. So right now, we've historically had a text-to-buy functionality that is really not a very rich experience, and it's pretty clunky in terms of the sign-up. Um, what we've just launched about three weeks ago and is, is in the hands of 400 stylists to be testing right now is a, an enhanced app for our salespeople that actually allows them to search Nordstrom.com and then send what we call style boards to customers and then customers mm-hmm. can buy from that. Um, so that will obviously continue to enhance and roll out further. Um, but then the flip side of that is can then customers use that as a process to interact with, with salespeople as well. Yeah, and we've got a, a whole roadmap of, of these kind of experiences, I, I think, precisely to that, that question of, uh, of additional ways that we should be making it easy for salespeople uh, and customers connect when, when that's when customers want. And so to, to your question, I think you will see in the, in the not-too-distant future us starting to turn on uh, functionality, for example, that would allow customers to both see a visual representation of their closet, of what they bought from us in their closet, but also to share that uh, in an appropriate way with salespeople and stylists when that's what they want to do. I think as you guys can appreciate, I mean, one, one of the things we're really sensitive to in that context is is making sure that that truly is on the customer's terms. I mean, what do they want to share with whom? And we want to be very transparent and put all that control very transparently in the customer's hands um, so that they get to decide when that's valuable for their experience. And so we're just, we're working through that from a technology perspective, but as much as anything, also thinking about it from a user experience perspective, how do we, how do we make that really both easy, but also very transparent to the customer so that they're able to control their information uh, to make their journey easier or better in some way. One of the things that's super interesting to me is a lot of the successful mobile experiences we talk about, they all tend to be in certain categories, right? Like, so you think of Starbucks and it's, you know, 
such a, a high volume, fast turn, and you you think of these general merchants, and it's it's a lot about like volume of transaction and convenience and ease and all those sorts of things. In your mind, is there anything like different or unique about how you have to think about mobile experiences in the fashion business than some of those sorts of? Yes. Uh, so I, oh, good. I, yes. Let, let me elaborate. Um, so actually, I'm going to start by saying I actually think I'm sure pretty much every category would tell you this, but selling fashion online is hard. And part of that is because fashion is an emotional purchase. Um, so much of what fashion retailers have been good at over time is helping you find the right product and evaluate the product by trying it on and help, help, helping you alter the product so it fits correctly. And so, so that part of fashion discovery is actually very hard. And I think what a lot of... As an ex-consultant, I think in terms of two-by-twos a lot. Um, and for me, there's a two-by-two two of experience versus convenience. And the mobile space in particular actually lends itself to think about that. Um, if you take on one axis, you have convenience. That's where things like the Starbucks of the world have really done an incredible job of making it very convenient to actually uh, make your life easier. And that's where the banking apps fall in as well, because I, I don't pay checks in a branch anymore. I literally do it through my phone, and my life has become so much easier. On the flip side, you have the experiential things, which are more things like the Netflix or the Facebooks of the world, which is more about entertainment. Um, the sweet spot is obviously people who do both convenience and experience, and that's where things like Waze really come in for me, or even Uber, which is they've taken what is a truly commodity-type experience historically and made it more interesting. Uh, for retail, that's hard because retail isn't exactly something you do every day, so you don't go to a retailer every day and you don't necessarily ask for product advice every day. And so making it, um, whether it's experiential or convenient, we need to be thinking about what is it that we could be doing through the phone to actually hit on one or both of those. Um, and that's where I think the challenge comes in. And just to make one final plug for fashion in general is um, if you actually look at the data over time, um, fashion as a, as a percentage spend of disposable income has gone from roughly 4.5% to 2.5%. Uh, and I think the the well, this is me hypothesizing, but I think the biggest reason for that is more of the um, move to online. Because, yes, people are buying more experiences and more technologies, but buying fashion online is hard. And that basically means that when, where people used to go to the mall to get product information and guidance and it used to be entertainment, people don't do that as much. And the, the actual online um, shopping experience doesn't lend itself as much to fashion. Um, and it doesn't do anywhere near as much on a small screen. At the end of the day, you have to see the product to buy it and you have to evaluate it and particularly it gets harder and harder on a small screen. I agree with all that, but I also think it's very easy to, to sit here and make excuses for why you know retailers and retailers like us in fashion haven't been able to leverage mobile as a, as a channel of engagement better with customers. And it's certainly true that Uber revolutionized uh, transportation, but before Uber, nobody had done it. And uh, it's certainly true that Starbucks created an amazing and engaging experience, particularly in the integration of, of payments and their loyalty program. But before then, nobody else had done it in that sector either. And so, you know, I think it's easy to point to kind of the convenience aspect. And I think it's true that that lends itself. But I think back to the beginning of, of the show, I mean, we're in an industry in transformation. I think what we're really seeing is that nobody's cracked the code yet exactly, but that's not because there isn't a huge opportunity there. I mean, if you generalize, you know, even a, a bit broader, I think there's a, a bit of a, a, a narrative going on about how retail is kind of under this huge attack and traditional retailers. And, 
you know, I, I'd like to take the, uh, the positive aspect of that. We're, st- we're in a huge business. It's a fun business. It's an energizing business. But, you know, as the head of Zalando recently said, you know, you can't lose track of the fact that fashion's a huge business and it's undergoing a huge amount of change, but pretty confident that in 10 years, you, you might not have a car, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to be walking around naked. I mean, people are still going to want to buy clothes, right? I mean, so we're in a business that has at its core, you know, on the one hand, the challenge, particularly as a fashion retailer, that, you know, the the stuff we sell, you know, people want to want it. They don't actually need it. Um, But at the same time, it lends itself to fun and engaging and energizing inspirational experiences. So the challenge on us to how do we take this amazing opportunity we have with technology to supplement what we've always done? Uh, which is to win with fashion authority and service and experience with our customers. How do we translate that into a world where they have a lot more information at their fingertips through their phone, but do it still in a fun, energizing way? So I, I think it is a hard problem, but just because nobody's cracked it completely uh, doesn't mean that it's it's not an opportunity that we should take advantage of or feel really uh, optimistic about. Yeah, that, that uh, opens the door a little bit. I kind of have to ask the the question I ask every show. It wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk about Amazon, your your neighbors there in Seattle. Amazon, um, I've heard of those guys. <laughs> who, yeah, are, yeah, who, who are uh, they? <laughs> bookseller there in your, your area? I thought they were just the guys yeah. that gave away free bananas. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken some of those free bananas as I've walked by. Actually, yeah. we, we joke about that, so um, the, what I actually tell people is one of the other things I love about my job is uh, – so we have uh, most of our offices located in downtown Seattle, um, and so we have a number of buildings, and we're lucky enough, Ken and I, to be in one of our buildings that actually has an amazing view. Um, and so we have an amazing view west over the Puget Sound towards the Olympic Mountains, amazing sunsets. All that's great. Um, however, we used to be able to see the Space Needle. And we can't see the Space Needle now because, unfortunately, there are two new tower blocks between us and the Space Needle that went up in the past two years, and that is our friend uh, literally a block away from us right now. So on the one hand, you could say that's a real challenge. The other hand, actually, it gives us a very real reminder every day that if we don't continue to move quickly, then the world is going to end up in the Amazon sphere. Um, and so that's something that we really need to be focused on. And so to go to actually to build on what Ken was saying, um, our strategy is really about how do we continue to make fashion an emotional purchase that people engage with and actually is an ele- elevated experience and truly differentiate from what is more of the convenience and commodity business of Amazon. Um, and what we need to do is really um, focus on working with our best fashion partners to really navigate the world of digital so that they feel there is a very compelling growth path with us so they don't need to go down that commodity path. And so that's something that we spend a lot of time on, which is how is it that we can work with the brands to create compelling experiences and really showcase their brands in the right way because in the same way that we're facing the squeeze on traffic they're, they're feeling it even more and i think for the best brands they want to be in an environment where they feel like they're with other great brands and there is really brand integrity um, and that's something that we're really focused on and they're making sure that the, the digital experience really allows us to elevate that yeah i agree with that I, I think you know amazon's a great company amazon's a great competitor and i think amazon we owe uh you know a debt of gratitude for Amazon for, you know, helping create a paranoia about how do you improve customer experience every day in a, in a digital world. So I, you know, I think as with all great competitors and we have a lot of them, they make us better. Uh, but I don't think that we, we look at the world and think that Amazon's going to put every other retailer out of business. I think there's a little bit of a, a narrative out there right now that resembles 
you know, the narrative that was out there 30, 40 years ago about Walmart. And the reality is that, you know, when Walmart was in that massive growth phase, uh, it's true. Walmart put a lot of retailers out of business. It's also true that a lot of great retail stories and a lot of great retail bands uh, came to prominence at exactly the same time that Walmart was growing, whether that was Costco or Whole Foods or a lot of other uh, great retailers. So I, I think there's always opportunity whenever uh, whenever there's a competitor that's uh, doing new things. Uh, and I think we it's up to us to make sure that you know we we compete in a way and serve customers in a way that continues to build on the things we're uniquely good at and the things that customers look to us for. Uh, so I think it's important to be aware of every great competitor out there, but also to make sure we're, we're writing our own playbook and we're delivering on that. And I think in the context of that, you know, we, uh, I, I think the challenge we have is we're a brick and mortar retailer that has been uh, an early has always been an early mover into serving customers across every dimension. And we were an early mover into uh, digital commerce and, and that served us well, but we need to make sure we continue to move forward uh, again on the, on the dimensions that customers look to us to be great at. And I think they look to us as, as a fashion retailer, who's going to help them look and feel good. Uh, and also as a retailer, that's going to win on by doing that in a way that makes them feel like we're personalizing that interaction with them. And I think that's the great opportunity we have. I mean, if you look at digital and, and mobile and the personalization opportunity that that creates in terms of connection with customers, uh, there's a huge opportunity for us to take what's always been a calling card of ours, which is personalized service. Uh, historically, that was defined a lot through just a one-to-one -one relationship in a store, we now have an opportunity to deliver personalization at scale. Uh, but it still needs to be done in a way that, you know, is relevant to our brand. And so I think where we are always trying to strike the right balance is uh, we, we need to take friction out of our shopping experience, whether that's a digital experience or in-store experience. There's no question uh, that customers want more control. Uh, they want to be able to have the journey that they're looking for any given day on their terms, uh, and that means we've got to take a lot of friction out of the experience. But we also, uh, you know, we're, we're in, a, in a business which is fun and exciting uh, because it's fashion. It's, you know, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be energizing. It is social, and we can't lose the context around that. We're not in a commodity replenishment business. We're in a business of, of making people feel good, not just about what they bought, but the whole process of engaging with us and shopping and discovering fashion. And so I think there's a real opportunity to win there, whether it's in a world where Amazon is or any other great competitor. We, we just have to keep that in context, I think. So, so it sounds like your strategy is to partner with brands. Um, you know, what we see a lot of other retailers doing is saying, oh, my gosh, these brands can be anywhere. So the way to differentiate is to get exclusive brands or buy the brands uh, like what Walmart and Mark Lorry slash Jet are doing. Um, and I, you guys invested in Bonobos, I believe. Um, is that also part of your strategy or you're really just kind of partnering with the brands and saying, hey, um, you know, I guess part of that would be don't sell on Amazon or, you know, uh, we can drive a better experience. So, so tell us a little bit more about that strategy. Yeah, I can I can take a shot at that. I mean, the, the I'll put into context our our business development, corporate development strategy is very tightly linked to, you know, our customer strategy. So take the specific example that, that you highlighted uh, there, Scott, which is Bonobos. 
we partnered uh, with Andy and Andy Dunn, uh, the founder of Bonobos, and his team. Uh, now must be five or six years ago. And that was really um, because we, we saw that brand, uh, a born on the web uh, brand that was highly relevant uh, to our younger uh, male customer. And we thought there was a real opportunity there that was a win-win uh, for customers, for Bonobos, and for us. Um, for, for us, there was an opportunity to have a product uh, that was limited distribution. It wasn't being sold everywhere, but that would be appealing to, to customers that were already in our store. Uh, for Bonobos, and I think for a lot of other uh, born-on-the-web brands since then, have realized that it's really expensive to scale a brand if the only touch points you have with that brand are digital. And especially when you're in categories where physical evaluation of the product is important. And so for them, there was a real opportunity, I think, to scale their business and scale their brand uh, through a relationship with us. And for customers, customers want to have the opportunity to to get exposed to brands in multiple places. So for us, the investment at the time was linked to a customer strategy. It was never our intent uh, to, to own brands. And it was never our intent, for example, in that context to buy Bonobos as a brand. Our, our, our investment there was to align uh, kind of our agendas, but also to provide them at the time with some capital and commitment from us that we were important to them and and they were important to us. And that, in turn, really set the stage for a whole number of other relationships we've had since then with a number of great Born on the Web brands that are important for our customers, uh, some of which have involved investment, most of which haven't. Um, we've also continued to invest uh, – in things that can build our business and our customer experience. So they're, they're not, they're going to be things that we're uh, investing in because we think the investment is aligned with helping to scale the business or to create alignment in terms of how we serve our customers. So we recently invested uh, in a company called dropship.com disco as an example, because it's a dropship capability, uh, a platform that really makes it a lot easier for us to engage with brands who are in dropship relationships with us and really make that a lot easier for them, a lot better for them, and a lot better for us. Um, but I think back to the limited distribution question, you know, our, our message to brands is not you have to be exclusive to us. Uh, our message is, though, that we, we think that uh, we are a great partner for helping to build brands and expose brands in a full price context where we we can provide an opportunity for brands to scale their business while p- providing the full expression of the brand of the customer. And that's, you know, as you guys know, that's harder and harder to do if you're distributed everywhere. If you're distributed everywhere, I think for brands, uh, that's a recipe where oftentimes you lose control of your brand, you lose control of the pricing of your product. Uh, and we offer an alternative for that and an alternative that still we think has a lot of growth. And I think we've had a lot of success uh, with a lot of brands, and Danny can speak to this, about showing them just the power of being in our ecosystem, um, both full price and off price, uh, both in stores and, and in e-commerce. We can bring all of that uh, to our brand partners in a way that I think they really value the commitment we have to presenting their brands in the right way and, and, and exposing their brands to a younger customer and a customer they might not otherwise have. But we're excited to be in business with brands that have their own direct-to-consumer business, have their own stores. We, we think that that recipe works well. It works well for a brand like Bonobos, but also for the more recent things you've seen us do with the likes of J. Crew and Madewell and Topshop and Ivy Park, we have a, a long list of examples 
where I think it works for customers, it works for our brand partners, uh, and it works for us as a business to do that. Yeah, I would add to that that um, I think how his, history has told us that exclusivity for exclusivity's sake can actually be more hurtful. Um, I think part of that is there's two ways you can do exclusivity. You, exclusivity. You can either take exclusive parts of a line um, or you can have the whole brand exclusively. And, and historically, what we've seen is if we take exclusive parts of the line, then you may not get the best products because obviously the brand's going to want to sell their best items in more places. Uh, and then with regards to um, brand awareness, we definitely see that there is a huge benefit for our partners actually having more exposure both online and in stores. And there's definitely places where we actually feel that um, whether it's their own retail premises or select partners that actually are um, select retail partners for them that actually do allow the brand to be elevated and maintain the brand integrity are actually pretty helpful. Uh, and the other thing I would add is that we have a pretty proactive stance now that if we see people becoming too mass distributed and actually not maintaining the brand integrity, then that's a good sign for us that we think the brand has gone beyond a certain point of relevancy. Um, and so what we do need to be doing is looking for those next new brands coming through and taking a really healthy portfolio approach and giving those new emerging brands a, a great place to be. Very cool. You know, uh, one of the things that's interesting uh, to me is as, as consumers get used to all these mobile devices, there are expectations that are set. And so then you gotta, you gotta figure out what, what the right mobile experience is for that, that, uh, customer expectation. But then as we talked about a little earlier, uh, there's unique and, and elevated expectations for how I would use mobile in a fashion context. And it occurred to me as you're just talking, there's actually even another tier that you guys have to worry about, which is, like Nordstrom isn't simply a apparel retailer. Like you, you uh, enjoy a unique place in the sort of fashion ecosystem and have a very unique and differentiated brand value proposition. So, like, have you thought at all about like what's the the truly unique mobile experience, uh, the truly unique Nordstrom experience manifested on mobile? Like, you know, can there be such a thing? Is that possible? Well, I think to Ken's point earlier, there is, a, there is a huge opportunity if we can get that right. And so we're definitely working pretty hard right now to try and define what that is. And I, I think it starts with having a very clear definition of what's the role of each of the channels. And I think with the mobile web, it's really about creating a fast, friendly uh, discovery experience. And if customers would like to check out, they can do that. Um, but what's interesting to me is um, we actually get more engagement with some of the content on our website on a mobile phone than we actually on a mobile website than we actually do on our desktop. Um, and so that's people coming to the homepage and actually clicking through to a story. So I think there's a certain amount of uh, fast, easy um, convenience that needs to be through a mobile web, but also is there the sort of fast hit, convenient um, content. And so that's something that we'll definitely be playing through. And then from the app experience, um, it's really, and Ken touched on this, um, how do we create a great experience that our best customers are, are going to engage with on a regular basis? Because if we want to be one of those five to seven apps that customers engage with on a regular basis, um, how do we do something that allows for frequent engagement? Um, it allows a great e-commerce um, outside of one of our premises, but also then also enhances the in-store experience and the linkage to stores. Um, so our app is, gonna, is really going to be our powerhouse in terms of how do we actually create richer engagement and actually elevate the experience in terms of the shopping and service and experience. And for me, the mobile web is about how do we have customers come to it on a regular basis because they think it's interesting, but, but it's also convenient if they want to check out. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that I think in retail, at least, a lot of people, when they first think about mobile, they, they think of it purely through 
the convenience lens and think that that's that's why how people are using the device. And again, to Danny's point, I think what's interesting in the data we see is that there's a lot of engagement with content uh, that's happening on the mobile device, and it makes sense. I mean, people are doing bite-sized engagement all the time with their phone as a, as a source of information and, enta- and entertainment and inspiration. And we're in a you know we're in a unique position, I think, to leverage. Uh, the position we have with customers around fashion authority to do that in a fun way in an engaging way. So I think the balance of how do you get that content out there in a way that really engages customers while still letting them have a frictionless shopping experience when that's the thing they're looking for. That's, that's the balance we're looking to strike. The, the other great thing about a mobile phone is it is a unique di- device to an individual. Um, and so therefore you can truly personalize on the phone and actually there's a lot of great things we have in terms of what lives in the brain of our salespeople with regards to style and guidance and the ability to show people the right product. And so we've been working really hard in the background or really on the data and services that would allow us to do that at scale through a mobile device. Quick, uh, here's a quick one and then kind of probably a long one. So um, Apple, Android, a lot of the data out there suggests that even though people's traffic tends to be half and half, um, and this is both app and mobile web, um, that iOS users are represent on the web like 80% of, of actual sales, even though they're they're smaller in traffic. Do you guys, can you guys see something like that on your side? Yeah, so actually, uh, I think our data skews probably even more heavily towards iOS, and I think part of that is the demographics of our customer. Um, so roughly 75% of our traffic comes through an iOS device. Um but Android is definitely growing quickly. Um, and so I think from, from our perspective, uh, we obviously need to be thinking about how is that world going to play out and um, between what our system, what, what our investment in iOS placements through a native app versus a website and similar on, on an Android device, how that looks in the future is a, is a pretty interesting question. And it's a little bit of all of the above at this point, but thinking through what, the, what are the dynamics between those two uh, platforms, because that has a big impact on where we'd want to invest. Cool. And then the longer one is just listening to you guys. Jason and I talked to a lot of retailers, and I, I would say a lot of them have kind of that that merchant king kind of mentality that you know we're going to go and figure out what's the right dress for next season and that kind of thing. And what I'm hearing from you guys is data personalization, data scientist. Uh, it feels like a real commitment on your side to that. Um, to the com- to the extent you're comfortable sharing it, um, you know, is this one dude locked in the basement that looks like the <laughs> you know the Gilfoil from Silicon? Valley or like tell us about you know it sounds like you got some pretty serious horsepower behind this thinking yeah so I'll let Ken speak to that because he actually supports our data science and analytics team but one thing I would say before um, he goes into that is um, to me, what's really interesting is if you just turn it over to data and algorithms, then it's going to give you a lot of good f- predictions on what's happened in the past. And actually, fashion is something where there is truly an art element, and that's where our buying team actually have a real talent is being able to pick trends and pick what's going to be important for the customers. And that curation element of uh, what customers should be thinking about is actually a big deal. And so I think part of the magic of where our world comes together is how do we take that knowledge that exists in the head of our buying team and our salespeople um, to really seed the machines because the machines are only going to tell you the rear view mirror perspective. Um, and so from our perspective, we're looking at some really interesting ways of how do you actually take the knowledge of the people who actually know products really well to actually get it into the right attributes that then will feed the algorithms and it will be more forward looking because fashion changes all the time. And that's the one challenge of using data science analytics in something where there, there is no constant in terms of customer demand. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I would say I mean, data science and analytics is a big topic. It's a big topic for us, and I suspect for anybody like us in our industry. And I, what I mean by that is it's it cuts across all different parts of our business. So we've made a big investment. It's probably one of the the biggest growth areas in the entire company right now is the way we've been scaling that team over the last uh, 18 months, and we'll continue to scale that capability uh, because it cuts across uh, every part of the business, including uh, supply chain and where we where we deploy our inventory, how much we should be buying of the stuff we're buying, but also the point about, uh, as you're highlighting, Scott, I think like w- what sorts of uh, product we should put in front of customers in a, a given point in time to be relevant. But there's also basic things that we're working on that uh, customers expect and we should do a better job on, which is, you know, personalization, I think, through a customer's eyes is a lot about the more they engage with us and the more they let us know them, the better we should serve them, which means, do you remember what size I am? Do you, do you help me by remembering, you know, which brands I, I really like and help me keep informed about what's new in those brands, but also help me understand what other brands I might be interested in. And, and to do that in a, in a seamless way that, you know, keeps track of, of how all of those activities happen in stores, on a phone, on a desktop, I think that's the expectation that we need to live up to. And I, I think to Danny's point, that used to live all in a in a salesperson's head. Uh, the fact that it now cuts across doesn't diminish the art part of this, and it doesn't diminish the value that comes uh, from this long heritage and, and deep experience we have in all of our people, whether those uh, those folks are our merchant teams or whether it's our, our salespeople and stylists. Uh, we have a deep well of expertise. Uh, just to use a small example you know, we found that it, it, when we do things like product recommendations, um, even though there's algorithms to support that, those algorithms for us perform a lot better if we don't just take the buying information from customers have purchased these baskets, but we also feed in information about what are our best stylists put together. And so if we can bring the art in with the science, uh, we know that that actually has a better outcome for customers. And so we need to put that all together. But at the end of the day, that's a big data science problem. Even just getting the data uh, connected in a way that you can connect a single view of product across the whole enterprise with a single view of customer across all their touch points with us. Uh, it's non-trivial, particularly when you have a lot of legacy uh, technology that uh, that you're in the process of replacing as we are. So it's a big focus. Uh, it is a big growth area. Uh, there's lots of different places that uh, we see data science and analytics adding value but none of that's at the expense of of the art in the business. It's it's a supplement to it in our view. Cool. It sounds. Uh, I'm getting a mental image of uh, a stylist and a merchant floating in a pool with computer brain connections, like Minority Report, and you know, <laughs> people, people are surfing the web and they know it's Sally Smith and that she needs to see this item right now on the computer. I like trends. it. We should think I like that the out. image. Let's, let's make yeah. that fashion fashion precogs. <laughs> cool. Very neat. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny cause this, uh, it's very timely. Um, so we've been talking a lot about mobile. There's a huge buzzword. I, I can't believe it hasn't come up yet in mobile is the, the whole mobile first philosophy. And so I kind of wanted to hear, you know, where you guys come down on that. Um, but what, what's been interesting in the last week, like Google had their IO this, uh, this week and their big thing was, Hey, we've been mobile first. Now we're we're shifting. It's AI first, which is the the topic we were just talking yeah. about. So, I guess two part question: like, 
you know, uh, are you embracing a, a, a mobile first philosophy and is that important? And, you know, is it if you're not, is it already too late? Like, should we be moving on to the next thing? Yeah, I would say, um, so we are embracing mobile first. I think, to me, the definition of mobile first versus AI first is a little bit false because if you broaden the definition of mobile to go beyond just a mobile device and actually how you are connected to the world, which in in reality is what's happening more and more, um, then I think mobile first holds. And it's really about how do you... How do you think about the mobile device relative to other connected devices, relative to the physical environment, et cetera? And so we are definitely still thinking about mobile first. Um, In terms of what actually that physically means, so I think the greatest example for me is um, when you look at the, the way we design and actually then execute on features and functionality. Really, we, we definitely, our user experience team now start with the mobile phone screen first. And so they will design for the small screen. And so they'll optimize for the small screen, make it, make it user-friendly, make it compelling, and then scale it to a bigger screen later. And actually, the way we then go code against that and execute against that is very much prioritized towards the mobile device first. So I think that there is a very real practicality of mobile first, which is you do the work for mobile first. But in reality, what it actually means is um, it forces you to be a lot more thoughtful about design because the user interactivity of a phone with a smaller screen and with a touch screen actually is harder than a big screen. And so I think I think it makes you better. And so whether you believe that but technically what it means in terms of whether it's the mobile phone versus another connected device, starting with a smaller screen or starting with a different use case than a big screen, I think makes the design harder and therefore better. I also think more powerful. I mean, it's a touch screen. It has a camera. It has a voice interface. It's geolocationally aware. It's personalized to an individual. Those are all huge advantages uh, in the kind of experience we're trying to create in terms of connection with customer uh, I you know I don't know how to distinguish that from AI first. I mean AI is a, bringing data and science and AI into the equation in terms of creating a better customer experience. That's still got to be delivered somehow, and the delivery mechanism from a personalization perspective is almost entirely now moving to be that device that sits in your pocket. So there may be there will be adjuncts to that, whether that's Google Home or other connected devices, but at its core. You know, I think everything we've seen, I'm sure everything you've seen, is that at the core of folks' digital engagement, the phone still sits right at the center of that, and that's not going to change in the very near future. And so I think mobile first for us is making sure we're keenly aware and viewing through the customer's eyes, not just that that's the reality, but also how do you make a benefit out of these features that the phone has, uh, which should add a lot of richness to our connection to the customer. The really fascinating thing for me is something that was embedded in the question, which is um, some of the announcements that came out from Google in the past couple of weeks is, um, well, for example, enabling Google Assistant on an iOS device, that's a big deal. And what that means in terms of customers' engagement with the different apps on a, on a device, and if they can actually swing more usage of Chrome on an iOS device, then that changes the game a lot in terms of the app ecosystem. Um, and if we can actually, if within Chrome, if there's a way that people can start to enable progressive web app type experiences that can then access the different devices on the, that actually are embedded in the phone, that starts to break up the Apple ecosystem. Um, so I think how that dynamic plays out is something that we need to continue to watch um, because that... To the point we said earlier, developing apps is expensive and living in the app ecosystem is obviously something that is a paradigm that we all know very well. Um, but if that starts to break and you start to see different engagement models, that is a very different way that we'd actually prioritize investments. Cool. Yeah. The um, So one of the last questions were tight on time. So 
the as we look at kind of the first quarter results, the uh, there's some charts out there that are pretty interesting, and they show mainline retail is really having a hard time of it, and uh, you know clubs are doing really well, so like the Sams and the BJ types, um, and then you see kind of more of the outlety type places doing well, uh, like a TJ Maxx. Um, so one thing I've heard said is that you guys you have your mainline and then you have your discount, and you know uh, I think some skeptics say, well, the only reason that Nordstrom exists, the the main line is to really, they make all their money off the discount side, the rack side. Um, how do you guys react to that? I'm, I don't know enough to even kind of like have an opinion, but I've heard that said several times by people. So I kind of want to throw that one at you. <laughs> appreciate that, Scott. <laughs> uh, look, we're, uh, you know, you can, you can read our financial statements to see exactly what we disclose about how we make money. But what I'll tell you is that uh, we have a, a full price business and an off price business. Uh, predominantly, we serve our full price customers through our, our Nordstrom brand, uh, as well as our trunk club uh, business. And we, we serve our off, off price uh, customers uh, through our Nordstrom Rack brand and uh, Nordstromrack.com and Hope Look. And there's an overlap between those sets of customers. And so from a customer perspective, I think the advantage that, that we bring to customers is that on different shopping occasions and, and at different parts of their, their life, uh, folks engage with different parts of, of the brands that we, we offer them. From a brand partner perspective, uh, there's also a, a real value add uh, to brand partners because when we enter a relationship with brand partners, you know we have the opportunity uh, to to present their brand in a full price environment and to sell their brand and position their brand very effectively there. But we're in a fashion business; none of us get it right every season. So there's going to be some stuff we buy that doesn't sell as well as we all thought it might, whether it's the brand or us as a retailer. And we have the opportunity to seamlessly take that product and and move it to our off-price channel. And that's good for the brand. Uh, It's good for our customers and it's good for us. Uh, We're, you know, we make money in all parts of our business. So I I don't think that, uh, you know, we don't have a subsidization going on between those, but we do have a lot of positive connections uh, between that. Another example would be if you just look at uh, the demographics of our customers, there's a lot of similarities uh, across our customer set, but on balance, uh, our rack uh, brand does uh, tend to attract uh, new customers to our brand, to, to Nordstrom overall. They tend to be a little bit younger uh, than our full-price customers, and about a third of those customers uh, over time become full-price customers. So they end up migrating uh, and not only buying in the off-price uh, brand and channel, but also in the full-price. So we, we look at this all the time. Uh, from a customer perspective and a business perspective, and we have a lot of data uh, to support the notion that uh, the brands, uh, the two brands are additive, the full price and off price business uh, are additive to each other uh, and additive to our customers and additive to our brand partners. So we're quite comfortable with that. I think that back to the start of your question, uh, you know, we are in a retail transformation period, right? And during that period, you're going to, you're going to see a lot of volatility, I think, in quarterly results as, as a lot of retailers go through the process of moving from their traditional model of competing to a, a new world and a new model of competing. And that's going to have some bumps in the road, I think, for everybody. Uh, and it's going to show up in people's financial results. And, you know, not everybody's going to come out of that in the same way. Uh, I'm pretty excited about how what we're investing in and what we're seeing in terms of how customers are responding to that. But that doesn't mean that it's a 
completely smooth or linear journey. It's not. I mean, that's the nature of being in an industry in disruption. But that's also, you know, it's what makes it fun. I mean, as I tell our teams a lot, uh, you know, if you can recall the first time you ever walked up to a roller coaster, I think everybody had the same reaction. The first time you walk up to a roller coaster, it looks really, really scary. And then you ride that roller coaster for the first time. And you, you get done with it, and about 70% of people go, I'm getting back in line. And about 30% of people go, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and I think that if you're working in retail these days, you got to accept that we're in a really exciting period. Uh, it can be a bit of a roller coaster ride. So if you don't like waking up every day and being in an industry that's going through a lot of change, it's going to continue to go through a lot of change that I think is really exciting. Uh, but it's going to be a lot of change. And so I think you've got to be energized by that and you have to feel optimistic about that. And I think we have reasons to feel energized and optimistic, but it doesn't mean that quarter to quarter, it's all going to be smooth sailing. No, that that makes perfect sense. And that's a great place to end because it has happened again. We've uh, perfectly wasted an hour of our <laughs> listeners' time. So, so uh, Danny Ken, I really want to thank you for uh, taking time out and uh, sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Appreciate it, Scott. Right, Appreciate it, Jason. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.